Hello, everyone, and welcome to It's Your Season.life, where we are discovering and celebrating life at any age. This is a story about you, for you, from people like you. We all share a lot as we mature in life, and the journey is made even more special when we can celebrate it with someone else. This podcast series is based on living well and eating well, with Living Well podcasts featuring guests who inspire all of us to live a life soulful and rooted in a passion. Eating Well podcasts will be focused on healthy lifestyle tips, easy recipes with a plant-forward focus, and all-around wellness. So let's get started. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this episode of It's Your Season.life. It is the Living Well series, and I'm super excited about our guest today. It is February, and traditionally, it is American Heart Month, where we really take a dive into our physical heart. But today, we're going to take a dive into our emotional health and into the emotional heart health of veterinary medicine. My guest is Josh Vaseman. He is the lead positive change agent for Flourish Vet Consulting in Boulder, Colorado. So welcome, Josh. Thanks so much for being with me today. Oh, Lisa, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate you. So I guess we have known each other about five years, and I'm not even sure how we connected. We're kind of one of these connections that, how did we get connected? But I do remember a couple of things that you told me that I've shared with many people that will hopefully jumpstart this conversation today, and that is the high level and percentage of suicide rates in the veterinary medicine population of, of practitioners and so forth. So that really spoke to me, and is, I think it outlines your work, but I'm going to pass it off to you and just tell us, how did you get started in veterinary medicine and where you came to with Flourish today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so veterinary medicine is is a very interesting profession. It's it's the kind of work that has the potential to bring so much joy and fulfillment to the people that come to it. And it's it can be really challenging work in some pretty unique ways. And I think those things can combine uh, to, you know, maybe create a bit of an emotional roller coaster for people who come to this work. Add to that the type of people that we tend to attract. And, you know, you, you, you've created a, a unique situation, definitely. So I, I started in veterinary medicine in the late 90s. I sort of stumbled into it. Uh, I, I started working at a PetSmart veterinary services in Boulder, Colorado, and um, was trained on the job as like a veterinary technician assistant. Did that for a few years, bounced around to a few different veterinary hospitals, and then sort of stumbled my way into uh, practice management and hospital ownership. I ended up buying, partnering with a couple of veterinarians and buying a small animal hospital in Boulder, Colorado, managed that for five or six years, moved on to another large practice up in Cheyenne, Wyoming, uh, seven doctors, seven day a week, it kind of pseudo 24 hour uh, general practice up there. I was the managing partner and the onsite hospital director. And, you know, Lisa, I had, I had a ton of success from, you know, like the traditional, very Western definition of success. Uh, you know, for anybody who has any sort of business background or business acumen, the first practice, when, when I sold my equity in that hospital, we were at running at 20, around 26% EBITDA, which is, um, you know, a really high net profit for veterinary practices. The average veterinary hospital probably runs at about 10% profitability. Uh, and the second practice, the first year that we owned it and I was the onsite hospital director, we had our largest gross in, in the hospital's 34 year history. 
So, so success from that traditional sense was definitely there. And yet somehow through all of that, I completely and totally epically burned myself out, like crying in the kitchen one morning over scrambled eggs, total breakdown for literally no reason. Nothing happened. Nobody said anything. It was a random Tuesday morning. But for whatever reason, just all of the pressure and the strain and the challenge and the stress had all kind of culminated and, uh, you know, very acutely hit me in that moment. And going through an experience like that, you know, I had a couple of realizations. I'm, I'm a pretty generally happy, you know, easygoing, optimistic guy. Uh, and to find myself in a place like that, doing really meaningful work and making money doing it, making good money doing it, um, was, was pretty shocking. And it made me realize that if it can happen to me, it could really happen to anybody. And it certainly happens way more in the veterinary profession than it ever should. And secondly, you know, we, we spend so much of our lives doing work, like something to do with our job, right? Whether it's actually on the clock or continuing education or recording a podcast with wonderful people like you, it's, it's still like work-related stuff, right? And uh, some measures suggest somewhere between 30 and 40% of our adult lives. I mean, I, I saw a statistic that the average American at the age of retirement will have worked so this is on the clock worked 90,000 hours. That's a huge amount of time. Maybe work shouldn't be something that we just survive. Maybe work shouldn't be something that we just get through to get to the good stuff. Maybe work should actually be part of the good stuff. So yeah, that, that's mm-hmm. kind of how I came to start Flourish. Yeah, so what, what, what were the foundations uh, in your mission with Flourish? Um, you led practice management and so forth. What are some things that you saw that were maybe missing? I hear you say that, you know, maybe a little more work-life balance or just how many hours we put in, but kind of what was the root of what was bringing you into Flourish or starting Flourish? Yeah, it's a really wonderful question. Uh, you know, I, I, I had the fortune of being in uh, leadership roles and managing veterinary teams and veterinary businesses. And at the time, I recall thinking that I was doing a really good job because the numbers suggested that. But what I, what I came to learn was that you know, success is so much more than numbers. It's people. And I wasn't doing that great a job at, at managing the environment that was impacting the lives of the human beings doing the good and worthy work. And, and that made me realize that I didn't know any better because no one had ever taught me. I, you know, so many of us, we end up in leadership positions and we're, we're just trying to figure it out as we go along. And maybe we've got some sort of a deep education in business management. You know, maybe we've got an MBA or maybe we've got, uh, you know, a SHRM certification or, or something that, that helps us like manage the logistics and the operations and the tangibles and the legalities of running a business. But nobody really teaches us how to manage environments, workplace cultures, the kind of thing that actually affects human beings that they carry with them, not just through their work and beyond. So I felt like that was a gap that that Flourish could fill in our profession. So I ended up, I went back to school and I decided to learn about the science of human thriving, uh, which is applied positive psychology. And I, I went through a master's program in applied positive psychology and coaching psychology and 
created Flourish with the mission of sort of translating the science of human thriving in a way that veterinary organizations can use on a day-to-day basis so that together we can cultivate environments that actually contribute to the thriving of the veterinary professionals who come to this important work. So a couple of things that spoke to me. I love that word human thriving. Um, We're not just living, but we're thriving. But what were you seeing? Maybe this might be two questions. Um, but what were you seeing is kind of the root cause of sadness, particularly maybe in veterinary uh, practices? And this might be a second question of some key points. What are, you, what are you finding that really need to be integrated into practices to have them be thriving and have their employees thrive as well? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So let's let's think about kind of like the, the the typical veterinary professionals lived experience. So you're let's uh, let's use a, a credentialed veterinary technician as an example here, uh, and uh, maybe I'll pull in veterinarians as well, the doctors too. So you decide, Lisa, that you you want to work in the veterinary space. Now maybe you're not in a place that you want to go to vet school. Uh, or maybe the challenge of getting into vet school is is beyond your capacity. So you decide to become a credentialed veterinary technician, or heck, maybe just the idea of nursing is really attractive to you. So you, you go to tech school. So a lot of the technician programs are somewhere in the vicinity of two years. Here in Colorado, for example, Bell Ray is a very prominent uh, technician school down in Denver, and there's also Front Range Community College, and they're, they're both about two-year programs. You go through that program and you graduate and you've got, you know, depending on your situation, your personal circumstances, you might have $20,000, $30,000, $50,000 in student loans to pay off. Now you get out of that and now you have to sit for a national board exam called the VTNE. You have to pass that board exam just like a registered nurse has to pass a board exam. So you successfully pass your board exam. It's stressful, you know, taking tests like that, or there's a lot on the line. You successfully pass it though. And now you're a registered veterinary technician with the Colorado Association for Registered Veterinary Technicians. You get your license. You're really excited. You start your career. You get a job in a general practice here and somewhere along the front range. And you might be fortunate to find a practice that's going to pay you 18 or $20 an hour. So you've got thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars in debt, and you're making about forty thousand dollars a year, maybe a little bit less. You get to work to discover that the client demands for the you know the patient needs out there in the community really kind of exceed what your hospital can meet, and so you're juggling not just the one thirty or forty minute appointment at a time, but you're trying to help your doctors manage. 15, 20, 30 patient visits a day. And during that day, you might see a puppy in your first appointment. And that's super cute because you get to get on the ground and cuddle with this really adorable, happy little creature and smell puppy breath and, you know, help somebody start their journey as a new pet parent. And then the very next appointment you walk into is a 15-year-old lab that the hospital's been seeing since it was a puppy, and it's got cancer, and there's nothing that we can do. And we're having the conversation about maybe this is the time to say goodbye. And then the next appointment after that 
is somebody who's got a dog that's been vomiting and having diarrhea for the last 14 days. And for whatever reason, they decided finally today that it was an emergency and they bring it into your hospital. And this is kind of your typical day. And if you're lucky, you might get a restroom break and you might get to eat a candy bar over quote unquote lunch. But most of the time you're working 10 or 12 or 14 hours straight, four or five or six days a week. And then you're going to your night job to try and pay your bills. That's kind of the general experience of a veterinary technician. A veterinarian isn't really all that much different. Sure, they're going to make more money. The average veterinarian might make, I don't know, eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000 a year now. But they're coming out of school with debt in the $200,000, dollars $500,000 range. So they're, they're accumulating the kind of education and debt that a human doctor will have, only they're getting paid half or less of what their human medical co uh, colleagues are making and then having similar experiences at the vet tech. The only difference being that the veterinary technician is there to support the veterinarian every medical decision throughout the day and that whirlwind of going from all those different kinds of appointments in a small animal practice all fall on the veterinarian's license. So they're the one that's at risk for their livelihood depending on what's happening throughout the day. That's kind of like the general experience of veterinary medicine, which is resulting in, depending on what you know, research you look at, burnout rates in the vicinity of 50%, uh, you know, like for veterinary technicians and veterinarians. Uh, we conducted through our firm, we conducted some research recently just a few months ago, and one of the questions that we asked the 600 participants, so veterinarians, technicians, uh, client care representatives, kennel techs, practice managers. One of the questions we asked them is, how often do you think of leaving the profession entirely? So not even just quitting your job, but quitting the veterinary profession. Almost one third of our respondents said that they were considering leaving the profession often or all the time. It's a hard, hard profession. It's really difficult work. It's emotionally, physically, and psychologically challenging every single day. Something else on your website that really spoke to me that might link to this is the word compassion fatigue. And mm -hmm. I come from a healthcare background. That's all I've ever worked. And we would see that a lot in individuals working in more chronic condition areas, such as cancer, emergency room, where you see a lot of continual trauma. Speak a little bit about compassion fatigue, maybe, and what are maybe some signs and symptoms Sure. Yeah. So compassion fatigue is a phenomena that's pretty unique to uh, service kind of uh, a work. So work where we're serving the needs of others. Uh, in the medical space, those needs are directly, you know, human needs, obviously. And then in veterinary medicine, it's both human needs and animal needs. Compassion fatigue is a unique experience that combines both the experience of occupational burnout. So that kind of overwhelm, exhaustion, um, you know, cynicism that can come from doing really challenging and difficult work where you feel uh, a lack of self-efficacy or a lack of making a positive difference over time. And then you just kind of, you lose the fuel, the fire goes away. That's kind of burnout. And then what we call secondary, tra uh, uh, secondary trauma. So secondary trauma is like, um, it's kind of like an extreme form of empathy, if you will. It's, it's feeling... 
uh, the challenging, difficult pain of others, human or in our case, also animals, and not really being able to do anything about it. Uh, which is a common phenomenon in veterinary medicine. You know, providing high-quality medical care is not inexpensive. It requires expensive equipment and expensive education and, uh, you know, costly support teams. And so that cost has to be covered somewhere. And so oftentimes that falls on the client. And, you know, when you have an animal, a dog that's been hit by a car and it's got a severe injury to its, you know, hind end, uh, you know, broken bones, maybe a broken pelvis, and it requires a very extensive emergency procedure, surgery, probably going to have to be done by a boarded surgeon. And then a whole lot of hospital care thereafter, and then rehabilitation, you might be talking about thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars. Not everybody can afford that. That's a lot to ask. And so then what are the other options? Oftentimes you have a case where, you know, a client, they care a lot about their pet. They love their pet. They want the best for them, but they can't come up with $10,000 to take care of their three-year-old dog that just happened to run out the front door when we were, you know, going to get an Amazon package and got hit by a car. And so the only other humane option is to euthanize that animal. That's really difficult for a practitioner who knows that they can save that animal's life, but they don't have the the resources or power to do so. And that happening over and over can lead to compassion fatigue. Now, you mentioned something earlier, you asked something earlier, you said, you asked me to describe some of the challenges in veterinary medicine, and you also asked me to describe what are some of the things that seem to alleviate those challenges in the workplace. Uh, and, And interestingly, whereas I said that about a third of our data set from our study said that they were thinking of leaving the profession, you know, often or all the time, a third of our data set said that they were rarely thinking of leaving the profession or even never thinking of leaving the profession. And that's interesting. That's, that's a large number of people who seem to want to stay doing the important work of veterinary medicine. What's different there? Well, I'll tell you from our data set, the, the workplace environment seems to make a big difference. Uh, you know, people who reported, I work in a place where I have a voice, like I'm heard, I'm seen, I'm valued. I, I'm i doing meaningful work that matters, and I get to see the impact of that work. That one's going to be really key. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. Uh, I have a, you know, a path to personal development. My strengths are noticed and celebrated. Uh, People support the best parts of who I am and help me reach my potential. And like, I I seem to matter to the people here, Uh, my team, and especially people in leadership, my managers, my bosses, you know, my supervisors actually seem to care about me as a human being. I'm not just a means to their ends. Those people consistently say, I'm happy here. I'm committed to this organization. I am not struggling with, you know, the issues that that some of my colleagues seem to be describing. I love what I do and I have no intention of leaving. Now, I know like this podcast, I'm, I'm assuming, Lisa, your podcast isn't really geared specifically towards people in veterinary medicine, in leadership positions, but I would imagine that a lot of your listeners are are animal lovers, you know, right. people with pets yes, who, absolutely. yeah, 
who take their animals to their vet uh, and, you know, see veterinarians and veterinary technicians and client care representatives. Well, it turns out that we can, as clients, we can also make a positive difference in the experience of, of the veterinary professionals who serve us and our pets in some pretty simple ways. You know, just like taking a moment to listen to them, just like we expect them to listen to us, can help them feel seen and valued, which will elevate their experience. Taking a moment to say thank you, you've made a difference in my life or the life of my pet, and here is how. So not just saying the thank you, but actually showing them how they've made a difference, that can solicit what we call interpersonal mattering or the experience of uh, um, occupational meaningfulness. And when we experience mattering and meaningfulness at work, our chances of experiencing fulfillment and workplace well-being skyrocket. Clients, we can, we can elicit that. We can create those micro moments of mattering and meaningfulness in the people that we see. So certainly our veterinarian, our vet techs, our client care representatives, the people that we see in the vet hospital. But truthfully, we could do that anywhere, anytime. <laughs> you know, Lisa, thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. It means the world to me that you want to show your community how important it is to elevate workplace well-being in the veterinary space. That's something that's important to me, and it means a lot that it's important to you too. That's an easy thing that we can do every day for anybody we meet. That's exactly why I wanted to bring you on. This is We are such an animal-friendly community here in Fort Collins and in northern Colorado, and I'm, I'm not really sure people understand. Maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe I didn't. You know, how important that interpersonal mattering is. I love that. I'm going to kind of commit that one to memory. And, <laughs> and you just gave us some tools as clients that when we walk into, you know, a veterinary practice, you know, maybe we can do a few things on our part just to, you know, show that we care, show that we're listening because we come in and okay maybe we're in a hurry we're dropping off our dog while we're going over to king super so she can get her shots and you know sometimes we're in a hurry but sometimes you know it's a little more significant Our, our pet has an ailment that really needs evaluating and looking at would you mind sharing I'm not going to say the perfect client, but you know, what are some some, uh, maybe triggers or observations that maybe practices need to know that maybe they're at, I'm not going to say a risk, but maybe just some things that maybe they don't have that interpersonal mattering going on in their, in their, in their world above and beyond. Maybe there's the obvious of, you know, turnover, but, but what are some kind of key features that, you know, things to clue in on? So from, from a leadership perspective, uh, one, of the, one of the greatest lessons that I think I've learned over the past few years of doing this work is that uh, you know, quiet, uh, calm, maybe even what appears to us in, in leadership roles as peace in the environment is, is not necessarily a sign of good. So what I mean by that is that oftentimes, yes, we'll hear, you know, the complaints or evidence of the complaints that the workplace environment isn't quite as good as it could or should be. But more often than not, what happens is people kind of check out. Uh, if if the workplace environment isn't contributing to their sense of well-being and thriving, 
they start to see it as, quote, just a job to get through. And they kind of check out. They show up. They show up on time. They do decent work, basically what's expected of them. They leave on time. They go home. And that's the end of it. And to a leader, that can look like, oh, things are kind of humming along and doing well here. But actually, when there's quietude, that's where I start to get concerned. In a healthy, vibrant, thriving workplace, there should be intellectual tension. There should be people saying, hey, this isn't good, or we could do this better. There should be vibrancy. There should be discourse, you know? So I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit on edge when I hear people say, oh, yeah, nobody ever complains here. I think things are great. Mm. If there's a lack of complaining, there's a lack of psychological safety. And psychological safety is an essential element to a healthy workplace. Very, thank you so much. So from a tech perspective, what are some things that you might want to share for technicians of, I'm not going to say needing help, but mm, I'm thinking about from the tech perspective, maybe where maybe they're where you were in yeah. that moment, that aha moment. So for our veterinary technicians out there, what are some maybe key indicators or things for themselves they need to be aware of so they don't get to that deep dark place that you went to that aha moment of crying in the kitchen on a tuesday for no apparent reason what might be some things for them to think about as well for their own personal wellness yeah uh that's a that's a great question and it's a big one. Uh, so there's so many different directions that we could go with that one. Uh, what I'll start with is describing some of the experiences that I had uh, when I was going down that path of like really extreme burnout. Things that I didn't really recognize or maybe not take so seriously or maybe just sort of ignore uh, for months leading up to that experience. And maybe that will help with some others, uh, you know, fending it off before it, it really gets to that deep, dark place. Burnout, occupational burnout, if you look at, uh, you know, some of the work done by like folks like Christine Maslach and others, tends to manifest in three different ways. And it can show up all three in individuals, it can show up just one of these ways or uh, just a couple of them. Uh, but the first one is what we call emotional exhaustion. So this is not just, uh, you know, gosh, I've worked a long, tough day. Man, I'm exhausted. It's not that like kind of semi-good feeling at the end of a good long day where you really put in your best. Emotional exhaustion is like an unabating, intense, deep, psychological exhaustion very closely tied to work. It's interesting because you can be experiencing emotional exhaustion. Take a vacation. Maybe within a couple days of, I don't know, being on the beach in Hawaii, you start to feel pretty good again. You start to actually kind of feel like yourself. And then at the end of the week, you start to dread, I got to go back to work. And then sometimes within minutes of getting back to work, you feel that exhaustion hits you again and it just covers you. I experienced that pretty deeply. In fact, one of the ways that it started to show up that I didn't really recognize at the time, but I think back on now was a clear indication of it. 
I would have like, you know, I don't know, maybe I actually got the weekend off and I didn't have to go up to the hospital on uh, Saturday or Sunday. And so Monday morning comes around and I've just had two full days away from the practice. Maybe I even got like a solid seven or eight hours of sleep Sunday night. I wake up, we make breakfast, I have my coffee, have a good hearty meal, I get in the car to do my 75-mile drive up to Cheyenne. And within 10 minutes driving up I-25, I'm literally falling asleep at the wheel. Like it's everything in my power to keep my eyes open. Driving to work started to like trigger that exhaustion to a level where I literally was struggling to stay awake at the beginning of the day. So that's the first one, emotional exhaustion. If you notice signs of things like that, that's an indicator to you that you, you might want to seek out some resources, some help, some support. The second one is what we call um, cynicism or depersonalization. Cynicism, depersonalization is like an extreme negativity towards the work. It can sometimes manifest as you know anger, lashing out, um, just like pure negativity. And depersonalization is just like a form of detachment. So in, in human medicine, sometimes you'll see this happen with doctors uh, or registered nurses where they just like, they don't even want to know the name of the patient. They, they just want, you know, the, the diagnosis that's, you know, it's that it's the, the cancer patient in room one kind of thing. It's that total detachment. And it's really heartbreaking to see somebody who spent their whole, you know, their whole kind of adult life trying to become the the person to take care of others. And now they've totally detached from others. For me, that cynicism showed up in the way that I started to treat my team. I, when I started at that hospital in Cheyenne, I had a true open door policy. I literally had no door on my office so that anybody could come in anytime with any issue. I, I thought that was actually a good thing. I now realize it wasn't. Uh, but anyway, I, I eventually put my door up and I started to get really snippy with people when they would interrupt me. And I always had justification for it. I'm clearly in the middle of something. I'm obviously on the phone. Can't you wait? Like that kind of thing. But that's how that, that, that real cynicism started to show up for me. Like I started to see my team as obstacles instead of assets. And then the last one is um, a loss of self-efficacy or a loss of self-belief. This one for me is in some ways one of the most heartbreaking because the way that it manifested for me was really, uh, it was just, it was one of the most awful feelings I've ever had in my life. A loss of self-efficacy can often show up as just this like genuine deep-seated belief that nothing I do matters. It, it, it wouldn't matter if I even tried because I'm not going to make a difference. You know, it's kind of like giving up. And, and for me, it showed up as not just nothing I do matters, but I don't matter. Like, I don't matter at all. I don't fit in anywhere. I don't belong anywhere. I don't know why I even bother. That, that was the real darkness that hit me. Uh, and so I experienced kind of all three elements of burnout. I'm sharing that because I think it's important for people to know what some of those things can look and sound and feel like so that they can notice, hopefully, in themselves and each other. Sometimes we can notice burnout in others before they see it in themselves. And if we see these kinds of acute behavioral changes that look like, gosh, you know, you used to be such a bright, shiny, positive person, and now you're just angry all the time, that could be a sign of burnout. 
you know, you used to be so confident and now I hear you questioning yourself all the time. That could be a sign of burnout. You know, those are things to notice in, in ourselves and others, and then hopefully take steps to uh, reach out, find some support, offer support, uh, get the resources we need to, you know, turn things around. That was beautiful. Josh, that was so eloquently put on how to describe symptoms of burnout. And sometimes we may not see it in ourselves, but we might witness it in others in the team. Um, and so that was just very well put. And I hope our readers, our listeners, I guess I should say, I do writing too, but our, our listeners, you know, may, uh, may be, that may be a benefit in their own work environment. I do have another question, and that is, would you mind sharing a success story briefly on maybe something you worked with in a practice and and made a a turnaround? What what were you seeing, and how did you measure that? (laughs) Thank you. That's a great question. Uh, So we worked with a hospital... Oh gosh, which one do I want to share? Let's let's go. This one's a, a a couple of years ago, but I think it'll resonate with a lot of folks, especially folks who worked in the veterinary space uh, throughout the pandemic. Uh, we had a hospital approach us just before COVID. I remember I was sitting at a veterinary conference in Las Vegas in February of 2020 and writing up a proposal for this practice. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the world kind of turned upside down that March. Um, so this practice ended up, uh, as with everybody else, sort of scrambling to figure things out. And so we didn't get to start working with them until much later in two, t- 2020. And by that point in time, they were overwhelmed. The veterinary profession got hammered the first year of the, uh, the pandemic. You know, we had all of these people at home with their pets seeing all the behaviors and things that they hadn't really seen before. And, and realizing, oh, gosh, well, now I've got this work from home time, I may as well get, you know, my vaccines caught up and that kind of stuff. The combination of those things resulted in a huge uptick in uh, uh, visits to veterinary practices. This, of course, wow. yeah, 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 wow. massive, massive increase in client demand uh, during that first year and a half or so of COVID. This coincided, of course, with a time when most veterinary practices went to curbside care because people couldn't come into the hospital. So you've got curbside care, which is unbelievably inefficient, combined with a huge increase in client demand in an industry that had ever-increasing turnover. It was hard. So we started working with this practice. We did an assessment of the culture uh, to see how the team you know, was doing, how they were experiencing things. And we discovered that a lot of the team was really struggling. A good percentage of the team said that they were just kind of getting by or really struggling. One of the things that emerged from our work with them was that they just really kind of felt disconnected. They, they felt really disconnected from each other. It was a large practice. They had grown very quickly over the prior years and uh, people just you know felt very unattached and they missed the relationships that they had. So we helped them create a check-in program that was sort of um, not exactly leadership run. It was really peer-to-peer check-in. Uh, we trained 34 people on the team how to conduct these five to 10-minute check-ins. We divided the hospital team by uh, uh, so that each person, checker-inner, if you will, had a roughly five people to check in with. We helped them build a schedule so that each month, 
every person in the practice got at least one check-in with their person and uh, implemented that program. About eight months later, we reassessed the hospital culture. We asked people some of the same questions, including, you know, basically, how are you doing? And we saw the percentage of people who said that they were struggling decrease from 12% of the practice to less than 4%. We saw the percentage of people who said that they were doing well, despite the struggles and challenges that they had, increase by over 20%. So that for me is a success story. And, and, and I think it's essential to understand that the primary element to that wasn't some like massive program. It wasn't give everybody a bonus for their hard work. Not that you shouldn't, we should. We should absolutely compensate people as fair as we possibly can. We should pay people in a way that makes finance not an issue anymore. And... It is a human environment. Every workplace, any way you cut it, every business venture is first and foremost a human endeavor. And if we can find ways to connect with people well, they will do well. And when they do well, guess what? The business will do well. And so will the community that the business serves. So I I think it really starts with connection. Oh, gosh, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, The whole idea of connection and interpersonal mattering just makes me want to go out. I love my veterinarian and do something (laughs) special for their team. I'm sitting here thinking, have I ever done anything just extraordinarily out of the ordinary just to let them know I care about them? I hope I even said thank you when I walked out the door and looked them in the eye, you know, past our masks. I don't know. It really makes me think, and I'm hoping this podcast will help our listeners, you know, think a little bit differently about their uh, engaging with their own veterinarian practice team. Me too. um, And and above all, have have, have some empathy for what they go through on a daily basis. Sometimes I just don't think we think about that. Of Of course. What their day, you outlined that so well on what an average veterinary day might look like be above and beyond let me take my happy dog in and let's get our (laughs) shots and our toe clipping but there is a lot of um sadness that happens throughout the day and and i think you've done a very good job today thank you so much for sharing this very important work that you're doing with these teams is there any final words that you would like to share before we we close out this podcast I'm I'm just so grateful for you giving airtime to these important issues, and it, I um, I very much appreciate what you said about you know even just like looking them in the eyes and saying thank you means a lot, and the fact that you're thinking about that, and hopefully some of your listeners will start thinking about that too. It just means the world to me. So thank you. I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm just so glad we stayed connected over these five years. <laughs> me too. Me too. And how might listeners learn more about what you do. Sure. Uh, you can find us on our website, which is flourish.vet, F-L-O-U-R-I-S-H dot V-E-T. Uh, I'm also very active on LinkedIn. Uh, I talk and write a lot about the science of human thriving in the workplace and positive leadership practices and those kinds of things. I even have a book coming out, believe it or not. Um, the American Animal Hospital Association is publishing a book that I've spent the last two plus years writing called called Lead to Thrive, the Science of Crafting a Positive Veterinary Workplace. But it really, it's it's human thriving, so it really applies to every workplace. So I'd encourage folks to look that up too. Thanks for sharing that. (laughs) 
That's exciting. So yeah, just let us know when it's uh, when it's finalized. I'll be sure and try to add that in at some later date. Well, Thanks, thank Lisa. you so much, Josh, for joining me today. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to flourish, continuing to flourish. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate you too. Be well. Be well. So that's a wrap for today. We've so enjoyed you being with us. I hope you learned something new, got some inspiration, and you are ready to move forward with your own new season. Remember, we are living life at any age. Take some time to visit the other social media sites. Give us some feedback. Shoot me an email on Facebook. And remember, until then, stay safe and keep on living. Cheers. Cheers.